On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named A. Garcia, and A. Garcia was in multiple abusive relationships. It's a story of generational trauma, emotional, physical, and financial abuse, and post-traumatic growth. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have A. Garcia. How are you? Above ground. Thank goodness. How are you? I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest on our show like A. Garcia is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And today you are going to hear A. Garcia's story, and this is a, a little bit unconventional from what we normally do. We're going to hear pretty much A. Garcia's whole entire life, starting off, uh, the, you know, really this is a story of generational trauma to begin with, and it's also a story of self-discovery in all of the different types of abusive relationships that she had in between. And uh, there's a big trigger warning for this episode. We're going to be discussing uh, physical abuse. There's some graphic descriptions of physical abuse in this episode, so that is a Big, big, big trigger warning for this episode. This story is not an easy one to tell. Uh, it's not easy to tell a lifelong story. And there's also a story in here about the grandmother to her child. So one of her abusers, that person's um, a mother, becomes part of this story as well. This is just one of the many stories that uh, A. Garcia has. So a really big thank you to A. Garcia for being here. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. A. Garcia, the floor is now yours. Okay, well, I am so excited and honored to be a guest on your show. And I know that you like to go through the timeline of life. And I am more than happy to be vulnerable in sharing that. And I will start with when I was involuntary pushed out into this world. So <laughs> I would have to say that um, the trauma actually began as early as then, my mother, when she was pregnant with me, was in a toxic relationship with her husband. And, you know, I was born into that environment. So I will share that about a year and a half at the age of one and a half, my mother had left. She packed her bags and she left her husband. But when she left her husband, all she did was take her clothing. She did not take her children. That was me and my baby sister. So we were left in that environment that was too toxic for her and that she ran away from. So about six months after my mother's departure, my sister was diagnosed with cancer. And it was not long after she was diagnosed that, you know, cancer took her life. Back then, they didn't have the technology or the research that they do today. And so my dad at that point was then left with a wife that left him, a, a baby, his baby girl that passed away. And then he's looking at me. So remember, 
It was a toxic environment. She left because she couldn't handle it. So now here I am almost overnight inheriting every void or every trauma that you could possibly inherit at such a young age. And the way that my dad coped with it was pretty much checking out. And when I say checking out, I mean like he worked third shift and slept all day. So there was minimal interaction as a young 20 year old man in the world, you know, still into partying, still into, you know, hanging out and doing his thing. He was left with me. So in his mind, being responsible was providing a roof over the, over my head. And that was about it. So, you know, as an adult, looking back, I could say that's how he was. That's, that's just how he coped. He didn't know any better. Nobody really checked him on that. Back in the day, there was no such thing as mental help, get help, you know, let's come together. It's more like figure it out, deal with it, you know, all of that. So growing up, it was very lonely. I cried so much because I was like, how could, how could a mother leave? How could a mother leave? And then it was so quiet. It was loud, like loud ringing in my ears because it was so quiet. And, you know, as early as kindergarten, you know, I walked to school, both directions. Every now and then I would get a ride from somebody, but not very often. I walked most of the time. And at such a young age, I was craving a connection. And I knew that home wasn't a place for me to, you know, receive what I was looking for. It was, it was very instinctive. So this may sound crazy, but it's true. As almost, I would have to say starting in third grade, I began going to the cemetery after school because my sister was very closer than where my home was. So I would go to the cemetery after school, do homework, just lay across the grave, you know, hang out, bond, feel like there was some sort of emotional connection there. I would have my conversations. I would have my crying. I would have everything. It was like a real weird bond that I was just having in my brain at the cemetery. Um, as long as I was home before the lights went on, which was embedded in my brain, but it was like, nobody was, nobody was checking to see if I was home before the lights came on or not. So later, you know, I figured that out and started, you know, not caring if the lights were on or not. But I also, you know, after school signed up for every single program that they had to offer any after school program I signed up for because you didn't need parent signature for that stuff. And then I also signed up for things at the uh, park, at the, at the rec hall. Same concept. You didn't have to have a parent sign you up. You just showed up and you did your thing. So I made sure that I did everything to not be home. And, you know, I also washed cars, pulled weeds, mowed lawns, um, cleaned houses, babysat, delivered newspapers. So that I could go to the store and get bread and have peanut butter and jelly, milk and cereal at home. Again, my dad completely checked out, mom not around. And when, you know, neighbors and friends, as I grew up, you know, learned that I was, you know, the only child and pretty much neglected by both parents, which is kind of not usual. Usually it's just one parent that's not around. But for me to have both parents not around, I was invited and welcomed into a lot of different homes, which to me, it's like today I say, oh, you know, my mother abandoned me. She did her thing, but I was blessed with about 10 other mothers, <laughs> you know, and um, 
that's kind of how I coped as I got older. But staying in the adolescent years, you know, my belief system conformed into this, like, I would have to say not bitter, but convinced. I convinced myself that if my mother could leave me, anybody could. So do not get close. Do not let anybody close. Guard yourself at all costs. Stay active. Do it, you know, keep your mind busy so that you're not, you know, reflecting or mourning or doing these things that make you sad. All of those things were instinctive. Nobody ever told me how to or what to do or even talked about tools to utilize for coping. So as a reminder, the environment was toxic. So yes, during my childhood, I, I was a recipient of different forms of abuse and DCFS was called to my house almost on an annual basis. They never took me away, which still boggles me to this day. Uh, but neither here nor there, uh, I dealt with what I needed to deal with. And uh, it, it, it takes quite a bit for somebody, whether it's a neighbor, a stranger, or the school to contact DCFS. So I don't have to get too deep into that. However, textbook style, here I am, teenager, and you can't tell me anything. I already have a work ethic. I already know how to get around the neighborhood. I already know how to, you know. Uh, put food on the table, supposedly, right? Bread and butter, (laughs) you know, but in my mind, I was already responsible. I was already self-sufficient. You couldn't really tell me much. And now I have this attitude, like I'm independent. I already, you know, I don't need a mother. I don't need a father. I already know everything, you know, typical teenage years. And so when I got to freshman year, I met uh, a guy that I thought was, you know, decent, like somebody I would give a chance to because where I grew up, there was a lot of violence outside the house. You know, it doesn't matter where you go inside the house, outside the house, violence is around. There's game banging. There's, you know, a lot of stuff going on in high school. We had to walk through metal detectors just to get into class. Okay. That's the neighborhood I grew up in. So to me, it wasn't really abnormal. I knew that I wasn't supposed to receive from my parents. However, outdoors, you know, it seemed like that's just what everybody goes through. It's, you know, a part of life. You cope with it and you move through it. Right. So as teenager, I meet this guy, he's not gangbanging. I'm not gangbanging. So I'm like, okay, we connect right there. That's a big, you know, that's a big green, green light for me. Um, because I knew not to risk my life over colors or corners, you know, I mean, come on. So, um, just to backtrack a little bit, cause I did forget to mention this, uh, you know, I was dragged around different parties and different places that most parents would protect their child from. And I was exposed to a lot. So I already knew as teenager, what I didn't want to get into what I was definitely going to avoid. And, you know, although it was very traumatic as a child, I appreciate it because it saved me. I I'm, I strongly believe it saved me from going down that road as teenager. And so, you know, this, this fine guy and, oh, he looks good. He's not about game banging. I could feel safe. Okay, great. You know, I end up dropping out of high school. I end up, you know, teenage pregnancy. And my goodness, we fought. We fist fought. Like, it was really bad. He was definitely the drill sergeant as it relates to those types of um, abusers. You know, it was almost like 
it was, it was, I didn't realize it. And sometimes we don't realize it until we're out of it. Because even when you're in it, you're just so bombarded with all these feelings and emotions and responses. And it's just so convoluted and, and nasty. And, you know, we were together for about five years. Um, it took until I had my daughter to realize that I was not going to be the mother that I had. I was not going to be the father that I had. I was not going to let the person that I was with expose my daughter to what I fought so hard to get out of and be out of. And, and I was not, I was just not going to re repeat those patterns. I wanted to be a better person. And it's really interesting because, you know, he also played the victim role a lot. You know, he didn't have a dad and he was always depressed and he was always trying to do and always have and make me feel guilty. And, you know, being like, I almost became a mother figure to him, very nurturing and serving. And it was, it was a nasty cycle. So I packed my bags and my daughter was in those bags <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we moved out and I went to a, a cold basement with no heat, uh, brick wall, cement floor, no kitchen. And it had a bathroom. I, I created my own little studio per se. I went and got remnants carpet and put it down a couple space heaters. And it was like a big closet for us. And we made it fun. I hung a hammock up uh, on the, on the, um, the boards on the top of the ceiling in a basement. And I just, I just made it fun. And it was, more about peace. And I decided to go back to get my GED. I decided to, you know, get a full-time job and I was harassed. I was harassed. He would show up at one time. He actually kidnapped our daughter, like literally showed up, picked her up off of her, um, big wheel, put her in the car and started driving down the street crazy mother like I am, you know, mama bear protector. I'm running down the street. I jump on the hood of the car, pull over. My baby's not even in a car seat. What are you doing? Pull over. And he's like swerving the car back and forth to try to get me off the car. It was like only what you see in the movies. And I'm screaming, somebody call the police, you know? And by the time I was thrown off the car, it was almost a mile away from where she had got picked up, which was, you know, in front of where I was living at the time. I'm running back, running back. You know, my shoes are all like sh torn to shreds. And the police actually arrived just a few moments later, which told me somebody heard, which was great. You know, of course, I let them know what happened. And they went to go get my daughter, brought her back. And it was it was just it was insane that that happened. It was very, very um, toxic and and ugly. It, it, stop when I left. It continued. It was just a different style. Right. So, so he ended up getting into trouble on the streets and ended up leaving the States, which I was like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be awesome. You know, that stressor is out of my life. And that's what I thought and how ignorant of a thought, right? Because I didn't have a mother. I didn't have, you know, my dad active in my life. So guess who I was stuck with his mother. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So at this point of, of your life, you're about to deal with this person's mom. You're 17, 18 years old. You have all the confidence in the world. That is not an issue for you. You're a confident person, specifically in your ability to do anything because you've been doing everything 
for yourself your entire life. You go back to school to get your GED, you start working. Obviously, now you're a mom. Before even you had your child and and everything, what was your life goal dream in your mind? Well, I appreciate that question because I don't have a clear answer to that. I was always in survival mode. So it was day to day. What did I have to do for myself today? I really didn't ever get the opportunity to dream because my reality was real. And I needed to survive on a daily basis, not just with food, you know, but also where I lived. Getting home safe was, you know, a big thing too. And so I I don't think I ever had the opportunity to dream big. So when I was at this space that I'm sharing in my life, you know, with my daughter being born, I tried to reconcile with my mother during that time because I felt such love for my daughter. And I was like, how can a mother leave this? Like, I would never even think of that. And I called her and I tried to reconcile with her. And I clearly remember like it was yesterday. She was just on the other side of the phone. So freaking chilled, like smoking a cigarette. Well, you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, and it was so, so unconnected, so impersonal. And I felt confident that I knew who I wasn't. I I felt confident on who I wasn't going to be. Not so much who I was or what I wanted. I was so clear on who I was not and what I was not going to be. So that's pretty much where my clarity came in. So we mentioned the mom, your abuser's mom, the grandmother to your daughter. And this ends up becoming an other toxic uh, person in your life. So tell us about her. (laughs) Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree is what I'm going to say there. So she actually started making me feel very insecure because there was something about her that I didn't realize until later. And in the beginning, it was, you didn't have a mom, so you don't know how to be a mom. I'm a grandmother. I have five kids of my own. I know what the baby needs. I know what the baby wants. Don't take her to daycare. Nobody's going to love her like me. I'm the grandmother. You know, and it was it was semi brainwashing because I was like, oh, my gosh, she's right. I started freaking out. And, you know, this was also her first granddaughter, her first grandchild. So I didn't realize the type of manipulative woman this person was until my daughter was about, you know, four or five. Because I'm in school, I'm working, I'm trying to get my life together. The dad's gone. So I'm happy that that drama is has dissipated. And, you know, now I have an actual support system, somebody who does love my daughter, somebody I can trust with my daughter. But I had, you know how many times I had to call the cops just to get my daughter back? I mean, like it got sick. It was sick. Sick. It was like, she felt like this was her daughter, not her granddaughter. Like she forgot that I was the mother. And because she telling me I didn't know how to be a mother, she probably convinced herself of that too. And therefore thought, that, you know, she could step in and and take. And it became really ugly. And I ended up, you know, taking my daughter out of that home and putting her into daycare and 
Then the grandmother started going to daycares and knocking on their doors and they didn't want that drama. So it was like, oh my gosh, I got, you know, one went away and I'm dealing with another one, you know? So I ended up moving out of the neighborhood that, you know, I was at and I moved to a suburb where at this time I had already graduated with my GED. I'm now in college. I found um, an area where I literally moved right across the street. I put my daughter into school at, I worked about four blocks West and I had a babysitter about five blocks East. So even if my car broke down, nobody was missing a date. Like I had it tight. And so at that point I was like, freedom. I broke all the chains. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm doing, you know, I'm in college now. I'm, 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 I'm going after not a career, but I'm at a corporation. I'm no longer at a rinky dinky, you know, side store, neighborhood store. I'm actually feeling like I'm growing up in the world and doing bigger things. And then, you know, of course the grandmother shows up at, at the play at the house, not, not the school or the job, but at least, you know, pounding on my door at the apartment. And, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing this. You should like, if you're going to do work and school, you have to spend time with your daughter. It's so important to be there to drop her off and pick her up from school. Maybe you should work part-time and go on food stamps and, you know, have the government help you. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I did that when, you know, she was first born because I didn't have the means. And, you know, obviously because her son wasn't stepping up to the plate and helping out, I had to do that. But you don't do that. That's not a life career. Okay. So her, you know, mindset was completely different than mine at that time. I'm trying to grow, expand, provide. And she just wants to keep me at the space or, you know, the level that she's at. So that became a big tug of war as well. So while all this commotion is going on with the mother of your first abuser, you eventually meet the second abuser in uh, your life. So uh, walk us through that. When my daughter was eight years old, I met somebody else because uh, I've been doing this on my own for you know this long in life at, at that point. And I felt like, okay, I'll give this guy a chance, you know, cause I wasn't giving anybody else a chance. <laughs> and he seemed, he was a bit older than me. He was, um, not anything that I was expecting in my life at the time. I had my own structure routine. It was a tight ran ship. Like you cannot really interfere with that. However, uh, it was unexpected. You know, we got along, we knew some of the same people, and, you know, one thing led to another and I, w- I was pregnant again. Um, so we dated for about a year and a half before I got pregnant. And during that time, during my pregnancy, he was offered a position in a different state, which he accepted. And we were not married at the time. And he said, he said, listen, um, you know, I have this opportunity. You can come with me if you'd want. I mean, you know, we're expanding, we're having a family or you could stay here if you want. I'll support it. I'll support whatever, you know, you choose, which I appreciated. And I thought about it and I was like, you know, this, the first success story when you come from a bad neighborhood is getting out of the bad neighborhood. And even though I had already moved to the suburbs that really, you know, that's just around the corner. It's not really out. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, let's do this. So he went first, of course, to get settled. And, you know, I flew out there a couple of times to get 
to know the different neighborhoods. I was fairly early in my pregnancy. And, and plus, I wasn't ready to just go. I needed to wait until, you know, my semester was over. I needed to, you know, at least let my doctors know what's going on and pack, you know, slowly and make sure that my daughter doesn't miss too much school or if any, I could, you know, I waited until her spring vacation uh, so that she wouldn't miss a day of school, even though going across the, you know, across the states. So I'm seven months pregnant, driving over a thousand miles to our new destination. And when I get there, my focus is to get my daughter in school, to kind of start the nesting, get, you know, say, see what needs to be taken care of in the kitchen, get to know my new surroundings. Where are my doctors going to be? You know, where's the stores, et cetera, et cetera. Our belongings arrived about three weeks after we did. So when they arrived, I'm super excited. Now I get to find a place for everything. And uh, then I'll know what I need for the baby. And, you know, it was a very enlightening time. And while I'm putting stuff away, I find remnants of another female. And at this point, my eyes are bulging out of my head. My heart is pounding through my chest. And I'm like, you've got to be freaking kidding me right now. I don't remember him saying he had family here. I don't remember him saying that he had, you know, anything, anybody here. So what the heck is this? And I'm like, okay, I don't want to start accusing. I don't want to start assuming. Let me figure out how I'm going to approach the situation. So I waited, you know, until the end of the day. I picked up my daughter from school, made dinner, like everything like normal. So while it's, I knew that she was falling asleep. So I waited until she was completely asleep. So while we're getting ready to shut our evening down, I said, you know, I need to have a conversation with you. I need to, I need to ask you a question. And he's like, okay, what's up? I said, well, while I was unpacking, I found, I found stuff of another woman and I want to know what is this? And he was like, you were going through my stuff. I said, you didn't hear, I, I'm not going through your stuff. I was putting my stuff away and I came across it. And before I could even finish repeating myself, he had already put me to the floor. He was sitting on my stomach. He had his left hand around my neck and his right hand closed fist punching me over and over and over to the head. And I knew that I was squirming. I knew that I was like, you know, there was there was some hustle, hustle, bustle going on on the floor. But then I hear my daughter's voice. A scared voice that I never heard in my life, you know, that mom, mom. And I remember it was like this big heat wave of adrenaline that flew through my body as soon as my brain registered that voice in my head. And I said, That's my daughter. And my feet slammed on the floor and my my hips thrusted to the ceiling while my neck is being used as a kickstand so he could roll over the top of me. I have no idea how fast or how in the world I jumped up on my feet that quickly. I ran around the couch. My daughter was walking, taking that last step down that stair. I grabbed her hand and we ran out of the door just like that, barefoot, in pajamas, with nothing except for each other. I'm, I'm looking around like who has a light on, who has a light on. It was like maybe four, four, you know, apartment, um, four apartments down. Their lights were on and I'm pounding on the door. Please, please. I need to use your phone. You know, they had daughters. So I just said like, please, please, you know, let the kids play over there. And I'm, I'm calling the police, letting them know what's going on. And after I hung up, I just, I was just on the floor crying, sobbing, bawling. 
I couldn't believe that this was my reality. Within five minutes, every single thing changed my whole life. My whole life changed. I had no idea if my unborn baby was okay. I have an eight-year-old daughter in the next room. I left all my friends, all my family. I have no job. I'm not in school. I don't even know anybody where I was at. Nothing. Everything was foreign to me. I only knew the stores, the school, and the doctors. That's it. And I had already used my money to go out there, get myself out there. And we didn't have a joint account. We were not married. So there was a, a huge disconnect right there off the top. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot, I can't, I, I can't do this. I don't know. I don't even know if I can, if I can do, if I can be a mother right now to any, any of my children. It was just, it was so many doubts and so much fear in my brain. Like, re, is this my reality right now? And so the, the cops showed up, they took pictures. I already had welts and blood blisters and enough that was, you could visibly see on my, on my head. They did arrest him. Again, I'm in a new state. I have no idea what the laws are. Where I'm from, you're out. You're out in a couple hours. So I had no idea. And the cops were like, okay, you can call the station. I can let you know what's going on. I'm guaranteeing you, you know, that he, he's not going to come out tonight, but you have to stay in touch in order to stay informed. I'm like, okay, okay. So I ended up going back, you know, after they took him, I ended up going back and I, I told my daughter, you know, I'm going to barricade the door. If you hear me yelling or saying something, I need you to go out this window, get onto this roof, jump down here and go to that same door that we knocked on. And she didn't question me. She was just like, okay, mom. And you know, like went to bed. And I was like, okay. So I pushed everything I possibly could as pregnant as I was. And I had my own, you know, little escape route for her. Like I said, that felt solid to me. And I stood up all night crying, sobbing, questioning, crying, screaming. I'm also doing research. You know, uh, what, what are my rights? What can I do? How can I go about it? I'm, I'm just, I, there was no way I was going to sleep. And I, there was no way I was going to go to the emergency room at that moment either. You know, I needed, I knew that I needed to take my daughter to school the next day so she could have as much regularity as needed. And then I knew, okay, I had six hours. I had six hours. I could be at the hospital for six hours. I need to know at that fifth hour that I'm that I'm leaving so I can make sure that I pick up my baby, you know, at school at that sixth hour. So everything in my brain was just like timing, timing, timing. I had to do it this way. I had to do it that way. And, you know, I did. I, I, I did do that the next day. When I did go to the emergency room the next day uh, to make sure that my baby was okay, you know, the doctor, of course, put me, flagged me as high risk right there. I was eight months pregnant. He said, you cannot go back home. You cannot fly. You cannot, you cannot drive. You cannot take a train. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm stuck. Like stuck, stuck. Are you, are you kidding me right now? So I, <laughs> I also learned the hard way that there is no immediate assistance in that particular situation, meaning, you know, shelters there, there, I, I was not aware of what to expect. So I just tried searching for an opportunity to leave where I was at, but still have my own space because I'm about to bring a brand new baby in the world. And I, I don't want to be in a community center where I don't, I, this is just insane to me. Like, what am I going to do? So 
when I realized that I was stuck and I realized that there's not immediate assistance for safety, especially, you know, in the condition that I was in or the environment that is needed, I figured a way to just be as resourceful as possible within, because like you mentioned earlier, my whole childhood has been of that. So I felt like I had the confidence to speak up and speak out. And I was not calling back home. What, what, I don't have back home. You know, I left my apartment. I left my job. What was I going to go back to? Yes, I have friends, but I'm about to bring a brand new baby into the world. And per doctor, I am high risk. I already had transferred all my insurance stuff. Like there was no way. So I, I spent a majority of my time online and on the phone seeking other help. And I'll get to that shortly, but I want to share what I ended up doing. I, I ended up getting a restraining order right away. And, you know, what's unfair about a restraining order is that when you serve the person with the restraining order, you're providing them your personal information. So that kind of defeats the freaking purpose. So um, I did go to the apartment complex. I went to the leasing office and I was like, this is my situation. Please take me off of the lease. I need to be removed completely off of the lease. Uh, you know, and I'm encouraging listeners that if you're, you know, in a situation or you know somebody who's in a situation, always encourage them to speak up and speak out as it relates to whatever their name is tied to, because every place has exceptions. And even though it's not easy to just have your name taken off of a lease, these circumstances that I presented in front of these people gave them the opportunity to speak to their management to see if there are exceptions and my name was taken off the lease. So then I was like, okay, I have 45 days now to get out of here. So I had 45 days to figure out what was I, what was I going to do in this world with a brand new baby that I was getting ready to have in about 20 days. And it became, it became the, the hustle and bustle of every day. My daughter was getting out uh, of school on like June 8th. My son was going to be born on June 14th, plan C-section. And then I needed to figure out where were we going after he was going to be just three weeks old. So up until then, whatever I could carry and put into storage, that's what I did. Whatever I couldn't carry, it just got left behind or sold or given or donated. It, it didn't matter. I left the place clean. I was focused on getting what I needed for my kids. And during that time, again, no money, no job, no friends, no family, embarrassed to call home, embarrassed to let people know what was going on, just dealing with it on my own. During this time, you know, I had to stay, I had to stand in line for food stamps. I had to stand in line for assistance, financial assistance. I had to stand in line for all of those things. And my electricity got cut off. I didn't have money to put gas in my car. Um, I, uh, and my electricity got cut off after I did a whole um, grocery shopping after I got the food stamps and, and filled my fridge up. I mean, I went through everything you could possibly think of that would be any person's nightmare during this situation. And so I ended up finding a room to rent and it was all three of us in a room after I promised, you know, the leasing office that I would leave and vacate the premise at, at that, you know, at that certain time. 
So it became so it became survival all the time. Like every single day was protecting and providing and surviving. As soon as my son was born at that three week mark, I was like, okay, you know, everybody knows that you have to get your first set of shots. After the first set of shots, they qualify for daycare. I need to get a job. I need to figure out what am I going to do? I have to get my life back in order. I already know I'm not going back home. Why would I go back home? That's where we have mutual friends. That's where we, you know, where his probably family will run into me. Like, I want this guy to know nothing about me. I couldn't believe that he almost took my life, let alone his own unborn child's life. I didn't even know this creature anymore. And there were no signs ahead of time. He waited until I was 100% completely dependent on him, 100% isolated from everybody and everything I knew. I was not verse in this silent approach. So this was very devastating to me. I mean, complete devastation. And I'm not going to lie. I, I, I did, I did cry and ask why for a very, you know, what seemed to me a long time, probably not as long as maybe, you know, it could have been because I realized quickly again, using childhood, you know, Crying and being emotional about things, wondering why did they do that? Why me? Why this? That doesn't that doesn't move you forward. You cannot control anybody but you. So I had to get in front of the mirror. I did not even know about mirror work then. This is just something I did inherit, you know, instinctively. And I'm literally talking smack to myself. What's your freaking problem? You know that you cannot, you know, do this on your own. Why are you even trying? And then the next day, what's your freaking problem? You're not giving more than you can handle. You've been through so much in your life. Look at your daughter. Because your daughter is already eight years old, you know that you can do this on your own. You wouldn't be blessed with a, with a, with a healthy baby if you couldn't do this on your own. Like, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Oh, my gosh. I mean, like, talk about mental and emotional war zone within yourself. Oh, I was on the battlefield day in and day out, for sure. Not, not a uh, question about that. So as I, as I moved on and uh, I stayed in touch with every uh, organization possible as it relates to knowing the whereabouts of my offender. Meanwhile, I'm still calling 1-800 numbers to find help, assistance. I do want to relocate. I need to get the heck up out of that, you know, area because I knew that he was going to be released. And I want to share that I called over 1,000 1-800 numbers. It was not until 16 months of nonstop calling places that I was, I was given an advocate. And it was from somebody, somebody, somebody that said, okay, let's, let's connect these two. And when I was given that advocate, my life changed at that moment because I shared what I needed what was happening, what I wanted. And that advocate knew the state laws, the state programs, the organizations to help out. So I was able to take his name off the birth certificate. I was able to serve him while he was in jail. I was able to get myself out of that whole community, that whole area legally and safely and relocated, okay? hundreds of miles away, but not ever back home. And when I say everything, I mean, like we changed our social security numbers and everything. I took advantage of every single thing that programs offer for victims of domestic violence, survivors of domestic violence to the any extent possible. 
And if it was not for that advocate, I would say that I would not have been given that opportunity to have a second chance in life to provide for my kids in a safe manner. Because my whole thing was, I grew up not having to watch my back, even though I lived in a gang banging area. I did not have beef and I didn't walk in fear like that. So now, later in my later 20s, oh my gosh, why am I doing this now for one person? But that one person almost took my life and my baby's life. So I had to accept that. So you found your way out of this abusive relationship and now you're about to deal with picking yourself up, starting brand new, but your story with dealing with abusive people isn't over either. So uh, walk us through this. You know, I'll, I'll fast forward some more because when I did refinally relocate and start my life over again and get my kids situated and grounded again, then mama bear really kicked in. It was all about, oh my gosh, now I have two kids. I don't get child support from any, any of the donors. Okay. I, I need to get a job. I, it's just so much. And yes, I was homeless. Yes, I was. Yes. I lived out of my car. Yes, I did. I was, I rather live in a clean car than be in a dirty space where I had to sleep with one eye open and kids in each arm. I felt safer that way. It may sound a little, you know, sick, but that was my mind at the time. And so (sighs) I ended up, you know, getting the job and putting my son in daycare and making sure that, you know, I had my whole ritual again, balanced in my life. And it was not until maybe, I don't know, seven months later, it took, it took a while. And then, you know, then I went back to school and I was like, okay, I'm, you know, working back to school back. You know, my kids are, are safe, healthy. So I will say that now we can talk about I never married anybody in my life until 20, 2012. So my kids are eight and 16 and here I am getting married. I met a guy that was just, you know, a bit older, been around the block, um, was in law enforcement, martial police, you know, helped people very big in the community, wore the collar, was all about, you know, all the right things, all the right things. And, you know, kids of his own, a good dad. These were all the things that were portrayed. And so at this point in my life, again, you know, I'm in college, I'm working, I'm taking care of my kids, I'm paying my own bills. Like I was at that place again, feeling confident, independent, and I can, I'm doing everything on my own. So here I am thinking like, okay, now I'm in my thirties, you know, he's in his forties. He's been through, you know, 9-11, you know, he, he's dealt with post-traumatic, you know, uh, stress disorder as well. So we had a lot of different things in common and we were very, um, very uh, balancing each other out. It was very positive. And so I thought, so fast forwarding, we got married. First person I ever married, said no to everybody else. And what a nightmare. It was almost like deja vu. Like you said earlier, this guy completely switched as soon as I left everything behind and became 
codependent on him overnight. And because that was his first form of violence towards me and I have zero tolerance towards that. So it ended very abruptly and there was nothing for me to really like face or go back into under the same roof with him. It was it was a, a quick wash. And so this individual, you know, now I'm emotionally connected. Now I'm like, you know, invested, I'm involved. And <laughs> our life changed after I said I do. Everything that, you know, he loved about me became an issue. Everything that he praised me for became a complaint. This individual was the demand man. This individual was Mr. Right. This individual was the water torturer. This individual was the drill sergeant. This individual was Mr. Sensitive. This individual was the player. This individual was the victim. Overnight, after I said I do, that's when everything started to surface. And when I mean surface, I mean like lies, uh, skeletons, BS, uh, so much. And, And the crazy part is that I found out so many different truths from his own family members that actually ended up really respecting, appreciating, and loving me. And this is so sad, but I'll share it. From that night surviving that double attempted homicide, all body parts that I used to fight that guy off of me, they all needed surgery. I needed repairs. My neck, I had major neck surgery. My neck was, I had, I had vertebrae that was herniated and bulging. My discs were completely out of place. And it was years that I felt this tingling going down my arm, but I didn't really associate it to anything. What the heck did I know? It was just weird. But then when it got to the point where stuff was falling out of my hands and I didn't have, you know, um, sensation in my fingers, I went to the doctor. They knew right away, okay, let's take these x-rays. They were like, oh my gosh, what type of accident were you in? And I, I didn't have any, I was not in an accident. I had no trauma. I was not a sports fanatic. You know, this was from that night. And so I had to have major surgery on my neck to the point where, you know, I have a uh, bone marrow from my hips, uh, you know, in, in my neck now with a brace. And then my hips, I needed to have surgery on my hips because that's what was used to thrust him off of me. And three surgeries. I only have two hips, but had three hip surgeries. And so while I was recovering from my major neck surgery, my husband at the time, you know, was getting on my case about why I don't have my wedding ring on. And I'm like, man, I'm still swollen from the surgery and the drugs. I'm still laying face down on a massage table because I can't even sleep proper at the moment. And before my surgery, I had found out that you stepped out of this marriage. So we have things to work on before we even get to that point of me putting the ring back on. So while we're going back and forth, he became verbally disrespectful and I'm at a very vulnerable place. And I'm asking, are you sure? Are you sure you want to, you sure you want to do this? And I ended up taking a bottle of scope and splashing it all in his face. And this guy, remember, law enforcement, martial police, 
well-respected guy in the community, very well tapped in. He called the cops, said he was in fear for his life, said everything that needed to be said. They came to the house and arrested me. Sick, fragile, still on drugs, three days out of the emergency room. And I, I'm going to share this. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So I'm in, I'm, I'm at, I'm at the holding cell where you can make your collect calls. And I remember people's phone numbers in my head, because when you're old enough, you know, that's what you had to do back in the day. So it's just something you still do. (laughs) And while I'm calling my friends, I'm saying like, Hey, you know, this is me. Can you please pick up my kids? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll follow up later. You only have like 30 seconds to talk. So I keep calling and calling and calling, but I'm leaving messages instead of my name for them to accept the collect call. So I'm communicating that way. And then I finally, you know, tell my other friend, I need you to bail me out. Please, please do that. You know, so that all worked out. I never went back another time that, you know, I just, I didn't go back. I was homeless again. So now my daughter is senior year in high school. My son is, you know, eight, 10 years old at the time, trying to encourage my daughter to not, you know, fall behind. She has to focus on graduation. Meanwhile, I'm on, I'm sick as, I'm sick as heck, sick over the toilet, puking, throwing up like days. It almost felt like days where I just, I just couldn't sleep or days that I was doing nothing but sleeping. It was, they've never seen me in such disarray even though my whole life has been full of all these traumas this was a significant point in my life because this is somebody i married this is somebody i said yes this is somebody i gave my all to in the past it was teenage stuff you know and then it was this just overnight thing that occurred this time it was much different and much different, but still similar. And even though I said I didn't want to be like my mother and I didn't want to be like my father, somehow I ended up repeating it because like my mother was pregnant with me in that traumatic, toxic environment. Here I was pregnant with mine in the same situation, you know? So it was like, here I am now dealing with all these guilt while I'm still present and, you know, mama bear. And I say all this to say that It took a long time for me to heal myself, to heal within after dealing with almost every single portion of that power and control wheel. That's where I'm at today after dealing with almost every single, you know, abuser type that is is known to mankind. It's, It's like, I can't believe that I went through that entire circle and cycle and I'm not even 50 years old yet. (laughs) you know? And I almost feel like when you are that strong, independent, on the ball type of woman, there are predators that are looking to prey on that because it's a challenge. Because if you're that good, then that means it's a challenge. I can chip away at that, you know? And that's how I felt this narcissist individual was. I felt that I was preyed upon. I felt that I was a checklist, a protocol, because this was the way that they maneuvered through life. He was successful in, in navigating through his life that way. I just happened to be a person that fell for it. So when you had to go through the divorce, did you have any challenges in that way? Uh, one, because of the domestic violence arrest, and uh, two, because at one point he was a Marshall police officer? 
it was a bit of, I would have to say a little bit of a leverage here because he was very involved in local communities and working his way up to like FBI status. And so he knew that if this became public record, he would also be, uh, what's the right word? Like, um, scrutinized. Correct. Because of what he was doing, right. His volunteer efforts and what he was doing for his personal career. So he definitely didn't want it to be public record. And I think that came to his, uh, the forefront of his thought process, of course, after the fact, and then he knew that I have a way of dealing with the court system. So he didn't really want to take me down that road. Um, so I was in commu- we were in communication, very minimal. It was very uh, straightforward about, you know, what's going on because I waited for him to leave the house, for me to go in the house and get, you know, a little bit of my belongings out, whatever I could at a time, even though I wasn't supposed to pick up or move anything over five pounds because of my neck surgery. Listen, I did what I had to do. And so um, what ended up happening is he said that he didn't want to press charges. And so because, oh gosh, because he's connected with the community, meaning general attorney, meaning different individuals that uh, sit in higher seats, he had the ability to reach out to friends or colleagues and ask for certain favors, which were granted. And I was like, holy crap, I am now realizing the leverage and the pull that he has with in this, you know, within. So I ended up going down to the police station and asking for a copy of the recording of the call that came through. I ended up going down to the police station and asking for a copy of the police report. And I ended up uh, taking those copies and highlighting different things, scanning them and sending it to him and saying, if you want to go down the road of defaming my character or putting my name out there to jeopardize my own safety from my previous, you know, abuser. I want you to know that I will take these records and show your people what you're about because you're a six foot one, 280 pounds man. And I am three days out of the emergency room trying to recover from major neck surgery. And this is what your call said. And this is what you told the police. And in there, there were some significant lies that could have really, really worked against him. However, you know, the two cops that showed up seemed to be rookies and and just took him for his word. What were the lies? Hmm. Oh, that he trains police officers, that he works at the sheriff's office, that he does all of these things. And these two cops seemed pretty young, kind of rookies, and just took him for his word because of the way that he was able to articulate the language. So anyways, that's what ended up happening. And so when I when I did that, he, he didn't he didn't want that problem. So that's probably another reason why he made those calls to kind of not press charges and try to get this stuff out of the system. However, he can't. It's up to the state, if if you know what I mean. And so I had to go down there and ask for an expungement. I had to go down there and ask for it to be sealed. I had to go down there and file for all of this. 
so after that kind of, you know, um, rolled over, that's what I was waiting for before I was going to file for divorce. I needed all of that first. So that took about, that took about a year. So after all of that, then I filed for divorce. This is what I'm about to share with you is completely illegal, but I'm going to confess uh, for the first time ever (laughs) what I did. (laughs) Okay. Now, because uh, I went down to the courthouse and did a major search under his name to see if he had any other filings, um, public record, most court files are public record unless you make the request to seal them or suppress them. There was plenty that I found, which made it very interesting. And I said, okay. So I read his previous divorce. Uh, and that's when I realized that I was preyed upon. That's when I realized that I was a protocol. I was just a checklist. What he did to me was almost identical to what he did to his prior wife, except for, you know, that calling the cops and stuff. It was more of putting you in a financial situation. And anyways, all of that stuff. So. I did not realize, and I was so grateful, he used a P.O. box, which happened to be my P.O. box, in a court file for a previous, for a, uh, for a different case that had nothing to do with me. So I said, okay, I'm going to use that address to have him serve, knowing that it was not going to him. It was only coming to me. So I did that because I knew that he did not want a divorce. I did that because I knew he was not going to sign the paperwork. So when the, when the papers arrived to my address that he used as his personal address in a different proceeding, I felt like that was my um, justification and that it would suffice. And so when that paperwork came to me, I signed his name and sent it back. So he did not know that we were divorced until I told him, which was after I got the uh, court approval for the divorce to be final. And and I did that by saying, I want everything 50-50 down the line. He owes me nothing. I owe him nothing. This way, the judge wouldn't say, well, I can't approve this without him here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I incurred a lot of um, financial debt for that, but I was willing to take the financial debt in order to break away and have the divorce finalized. And how did he respond to that? Ooh, you did what? (laughs) Do you understand that's a federal you know, yada, yada. And I said, yes, I do. If you would like to take me to court about it, I'm more than happy to justify my reasoning behind it and show that you use this address for your own personal gain on something else that I even had nothing that I knew nothing about. So, you know, it, it didn't move me. I didn't, I didn't really care at the time what he had to say or how he felt about it i was doing what i felt was best for me i knew at that moment in time that i was oh that i was torn down to lesser than a grain of sand i've never felt like that in my life with anybody that i ever dealt with not 
anybody, even my own mother abandoning me, I didn't feel the way that I felt with this um, guy that I called my husband. I trusted him with my life. I gave him the best of me. I reserved all of what I was reserving myself for as a wife and gave it to him. And for what? <laughs> for what? To be completely taken advantage of, to be, to be, he was a freaking predator. When I saw, when I read his last divorce, I realized that this was the same thing that he did to that woman. She was on her own. She was, had her own house. She was in school. She was working. She was raising her kids. She was, she was stable. And then here he came. And then he made it seem like she was the abuser. They were in counseling and he was crying because he couldn't believe the stuff that she was doing. And I fell for it. I was like, oh my gosh, of course, after 9-11 and this is what she did to you and you were taken advantage of because you were emotionally distraught from 9-11. Oh my gosh, you know, like I was so stupid. I was so stupid. I, I naive. And how can I say naive when I had already went through all that other stuff in my life? I just felt like because he was older, because I was older, because he had went through so much and that this was just a different, it was just, I just felt that it was different, but I'm learning. It doesn't matter how old you are. If this is the way you get through life and you have gotten through life, then that's just who you are. So uh, to help point out uh, some things for people who might've gone through the same thing as you, uh, can you give us some examples of how he phrased things so you would help him out financially? It was, you know, during the marriage, I have bad credit. Can you can you open up a credit card? Can you take a loan out? Can you do this? Can you do that? You know, it'll it'll get reestablished together. Don't worry. You know, I make 10 grand a month. I'll pay off that bill. I'll pay off that bill. And it just became an endless promise. And then it became like, bare minimal payments because it was coming out of, you know, my account, not his account, because we didn't have that joint account yet. And it was just like, holy crap. I believed him because we were married, but that does not mean that I should have, you know, like, why didn't I learn from the last time that we should have a joint account that I should be receiving that, you know, this should be a credit card with both of our names, not just my name, you know, like I could be a co-signer, but it was just, it was just dumb. And then he was also doing that to me emotionally, you know, when I'm telling you that demand, the Mr. Right, it was all of these things wrapped up into one person. So when it came to the demanding things and like the Mr. Right stuff, what kind of stuff was he saying to you? I know this because of my background. I know that because of what I've done in life. I know better because. I mean, even down to the spiritual part, because I wore the collar. This is the word. This is how it's used. You are supposed to, um, you are supposed to submit to me. I am the husband. I am the man. I am this. I am that. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that because he knew the Bible, because he knew the word, because he wore the, the collar, because he's been through all of these different things in his life, because of the Marshall police, because of working with witness protection, victims in the witness protection program, because he, it was all of these things that he knew, knew, knew. So he had all these demands and, you know, and then the victim part of, you know, oh, I know what it's like to suffer because of the whole 9-11 thing. And, and I, and I don't want to take away from those people that really do suffer behind 9-11. You know, it's just that he used that as a tool to manipulate emotionally. 
And I mean, like the punishment that I would get would be like the silent treatment for days or, you know, slamming doors and acting mad and don't talk to me. And, you know, and then it was like the gaslighting, putting the light on me, accusing me of things I would never even do, like complete character assassination. So to the point where I'm like defending myself. No, what are you talking about? No, like crying and crying. Like, that's not who I am. But let me show you. Let me prove to you. Let me, you know, plead my innocence here, like making me feel guilty for stuff I didn't even do, you know, you know, while he's accusing me of doing things behind my back, he was actually the one. So it was like, it was projecting, he was projecting, but I didn't know. I didn't know. So it just, it just, I mean, to the point like where I'm literally at the water crying so much, I feel like I'm filling the lake by feet of with feet of my tears because I didn't, I, I lost myself. I had no idea who I was. I didn't know who I wasn't anymore at that time either. I didn't know either one. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I wasn't. I just realized everything he praised me for and, and like delighted in me for, and said that I had so, so many great attributes, you know, quickly became your OCD. You're the drill sergeant. Everything doesn't have to be like this. Just because you had to survive when you were a child doesn't mean that this is what you bring to a marriage. You have a companion now. Things are supposed to be equally split. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And I was just like, whoa. And then it got to the part where, because I, I think it's because your mother abandoned you. You feel like, you know, I'm going to do the same thing, but we're, and it was just like, holy cow. Everything I told him in confidence and in trust then became a weapon that he was using against me. And I was like, whoa, I'm so happy he called the cops because I have no idea what would have happened or where our marriage would have gone beyond that, beyond that day. I, I, I was already in a place where I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to heal because I'm dealing with this emotional trauma before I even went into the surgery. So to me, I was like, you know, you ended it the best way possible, cold turkey, because out of all of that, you call the cops on me and have me arrested. That's worse than throwing out the damn trash. Like you threw me out into the in, like like I was like I was less than trash. So I'm, I'm not going back. I'm, and I never and I didn't go back. You know, again, I was I was homeless 54 days with my kids during that time frame. And looking back. You know, that's the best thing and the best way it could have happened because I have no idea what it may or could have escalated to based on his um, abilities and, of course, you know, mine. <laughs> so when people hear the name of this show, which is Narcissist Apocalypse, and they read the tagline of the show, which is giving a voice to survivors of domestic violence, you know, a lot of our show, especially when the show began, it was about telling stories and it was about discussing the abuse and the experience of, of the abuse that you went through and, you know, giving people language and validation for what they went through. But in my opinion, and everyone can have their own opinion about the show, but in my opinion, this show is also a show of self-discovery. So I know this is a big thing for you self-discovery and you know who you were how you were raised which is why we eventually started doing that kind of stuff on this show and 
you know, you mentioned your mom and your dad and the way they both were. And eventually you had a conversation with your daughter where unbeknownst to you, your daughter's experience of you growing up was one of a protector of, of her and she appreciated that, appreciated that. But something that she also said to you was that you were distant and that is something that was probably very difficult for you to hear and that is an understatement uh, for someone to hear, especially when you've been surviving your whole entire life, continue to survive and have done your best to raise your child in, in everything. So when it comes to your self-discovery and when it comes to hearing that, how did you take what has happened to you and figure out, I guess, who you are, who you were and reconciling everything that has happened. And I guess from also from that point, how do you view yourself and your future? And do you now think that you have a dream or a future in, in a way that you didn't when I asked you earlier um, when we started this chat that we're having? Okay. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so as hard as that was to hear from my daughter, because of course that was my number one thing that I wanted to be different with as a mother, right? Because my mother wasn't physically around and obviously emotionally was never. So um, I didn't want to be that, but hearing that from her, I had to accept it because she's, her feelings are valid. And I realized that, you know, yeah, um, maybe I wasn't emotionally there because A, I don't know, or I didn't know how to have that emotional connection under such under such pressure of making sure that the protection and the and the providing requires like protecting and providing superseded emotion in my in my personal life as a mother during under these circumstances raising my children and i said to her, we need to get the five love languages. We need to read this and we need to do the exercises at the back of the book. And we did. And she in return said, mom, there's this three day seminar I want us to go to, um, that I got, you know, friends that went to and they raved about it. And I think we should do it. And that was hard. I don't think I've ever, I'm not a crier. And I don't think I've, I ever cried as much in my life during those three days of this transformational workshop that we did together. I mean, not Kleenexes, Kleenex boxes. Okay. <laughs> that, we, that I went through and it was like, it was a really small crowd. There was only, I think 16 people in total. And so it was like 12 hours a day. And it was very, very intimate and very deep. And um, we did not come out of that very strong. Uh, it took it took about five years of us working towards this. And at first, I was really upset um, just because 
I felt like I was being attacked. I didn't feel like I was being accepted, um, you know, directly with my daughter. I, I felt like I was being like, just not heard. I don't want to say that I was being heard. I, I, I just felt really attacked. I felt very, um, like, like there was this perception opposed to understanding. So I worked really hard on giving not justification, but like background, you know, with the, the fight of not being the mother that I had, the fight of being a provider and a protector and, you know, just defending, defending, defending again. And it was very triggering. And so when I tried to give my daughter the love language that she needs in her life, when I tried to apply the tools and techniques that I used or that I learned from the workshop that we went through, um, she was like, you know, I just feel like you're being sarcastic. I just feel like it's sarcastic. And I was like, okay, I'm really sorry you're feeling like my attempts are being are sarcastic. And I understand that you would see it that way because this is new to you. But what you're doing is pushing me away. And if you want the relationship that you say you want from me, you want the love language from me that you're seeking, you have to understand that it's my efforts. It's not sarcasm. It's my efforts being displayed here. Either you want them or you don't because you're going to push me away and it's easy to go back to what I know. I'm willing to work and do my best. What do you want, daughter? <laughs> you know. And she was like, it took her a while, but she became receptive because I was consistent. I am serious when I say that I want to break links and chains that was, has been generational trauma in our lives. And I want to be that one. And so today we're solid. We are solid. She moved, you know, over a thousand miles away. I did a great job because she's an independent woman. She doesn't call for money. She calls for knowledge. She calls for wisdom. She calls for motherly advice. She trusts where I'm coming from. She knows that what I have to offer is real life, not fairy tale. And I've never been that fairy tale mom. I've never been that sugarcoating mom. I'm in your face. I'm keeping it as raw and real as possible, even though it might be over the top. And I'd rather be over the top with the raw and realness than freaking sugarcoating crap. And you're dealing with the stuff I had to deal with. You know, I want to prevent all that for your adulthood. And what do you want? <laughs> what do I want? Well, I want a continuous solid relationship with both of my children. I want to make sure that I am giving them the mental health that they need in life to navigate through their traumas and challenges to the point where even though they've had some uncontrollable things on my behalf, that the way they cope with it is a way that is a positive coping skill that they don't have resentment and that they don't carry their baggage into their future. So I know that's really not more of what I want personally. That's more of what I want as a mother. I'm going to answer your question in a moment. I was in a life-threatening car accident about 18 months ago. I had only a 1% chance to survive. I literally was broken from, from head to toe. And I realized at that point in my life, me and the ceiling had many conversations and I knew that 
I wasn't fighting for my life. I was too weak to fight for my life. I had a 1% chance of surviving. So this was a higher power fighting for me on my behalf. And I believe that my life was spared, that I was sent back to give back. And what I mean by giving back is my stories of post-traumatic growth, my stories of how I coped, my stories of how I navigated, my stories of inspiration to empower other women to step out, step forward, speak up, speak out. You're not alone. You don't have to suffer alone. There's, there's people, maybe not programs or organizations that are readily available real time, but that's where this nonprofit comes into play. Like, seven or eight months after I came out of rehab, learning how to write and walk and talk again, I, I established this nonprofit and it's to fill that gap of unavailable resources to real-time victims. And I started a for-profit, a coaching business. I'm a certified high performance coach through Brendan Burchard. I had to find what resources were out there to truly get over humps in your life and inner critics that you that you self-sabotaging talks that you give to yourself and i went through it not to give to anybody else but to get through on my own because it's cheaper to learn and become certified than it is to be a patient on the other side of the table per se so i had no intent on giving this outward or, or off have, you know, having programs and offering it outward. This was all inward for me. And then after my accident, I said, I need to take everything that I've done, all this boots on the ground wisdom, all this, you know, um, hours spent in line and hours talking to, you know, legal self-help centers and hours figuring out how to navigate through these systems on my own. I, I need to package these up and help people so they don't have to spend 18 years trying to figure it out. I'll provide that. So I established um, a for-profit called Be Your Incredible Self, where I talk about post-traumatic growth. And I have this nonprofit now to help real-time victims. And I just did this. I, I, I'm brand new in both of these areas, but you can tell I've been through it and I'm ready. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would it be? Never, ever neglect your mindset. That is the highest price you will ever pay in your life. Well, A. Garcia, you really did a fantastic job today in sharing your story and showcasing you. You know, you're just a wonderful person, and I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your story because you're going to help a lot of people. So a big thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much. And, you know, we can move a million times, but we live in our head. So it's really important to have your mental space clean. Well, thank you, A. Garcia, for being a guest on our show. And if you want to reach A. Garcia, all of her information will be in our show notes. And if you want to be a guest like A. Garcia was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page there. 
You will see all of these instructions. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do read all of our instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own support group. So if you need some support, join our support group today on there. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards on there for you to post what you're going through, get validation that you need, share your experience, and also validate everyone else's experiences on there as well. We have a a bunch of survivors on there that are there to help you get through what you're going through. So it's a great group of people. So join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And at DomesticShelters.org, you can read some amazing articles to help you make sense of what you are going through. They have on there every phone number, every website address, and every email address for shelters and abuse agencies, no matter how big or small your town is uh, domesticshelters.org has it there. So please go to domesticshelters.org. It's a wonderful organization. And that is it for today's show. So for myself and A. Garcia, we hope you have a good night.